0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Now, this is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing beforehand. I will read parts of it throughout the sermon. I will summarize other parts for you. I would encourage you, find time later tonight, this week, read through the entire chapter on your own, but keep it open since I'll be referring to it. Throughout the sermon. But before we begin, let us hear God, let us call upon our God and ask for His grace in believing and understanding His word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that once again, as we trust you did this morning, that you would work by your Holy Spirit to take your word, to apply it to our hearts that we would bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray that you would illumine, illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that we would be able to understand your word. Even a text like Judges 9 that can seem strange and not exactly sure at first why it's so relevant to us, but I pray that you would show that to us as we take time to meditate upon it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the first eight chapters of Judges, we have seen God patiently extend His mercy to His rebellious people Israel over and over again. They continue to reject him, to rush headfirst into idolatry. But whenever they cry out to the Lord for mercy and help, he has extended it to them. For our God is merciful. But we shouldn't ever presume upon God's mercy, operating as if God is obligated to extend mercy. He is not. He is free to extend mercy, and he is free to withhold mercy. For we know that God is merciful, but God is also just. And his attributes are, are never in conflict He is always merciful. He's always just at the same time. But some of his works more readily display his mercy to us, while other of his works more readily display his justice. When we considered the story of Gideon, we saw a lot of mercy. As we consider the story of Abimelech, Gideon's son, we're going to see a little bit more justice. For you might be tempted as you read through Judges, which catalogs Israel's repeated violations of God's covenant, to conclude, well, God doesn't really care about his covenant. His covenant curses are just idle threats, and he never actually follows through with judgment. That would be a mistaken conclusion. And the story of Abimelech guards you from making that mistake. If we look at the last two verses of this story, which are verses 56 and 57, because these two verses provide the theological interpretation for all of the strange and convoluted events that are in Judges chapter 9. So, here verses 56 and 57. says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. Now, that summary may not make total sense to you yet, but you can at least understand now that everything that happens in Judges 9 is the result of God repaying Abimelech and the Shechemites for their sin. He is going to give them exactly what they deserve, and this judgment is going to fulfill a specific curse that is spoken against them that is warning them of the judgment that will come if they continue in their sin. For stories of God's justice are to serve as warnings of God's covenant curse, which will fall upon all of those who remain in the guilt of their sin. However, I will also try to show you this evening how God's judgment upon Abimelech and the people of Shechem at the same time is still serving God's salvation of Israel. For God is so good and he is so wise that he even ordains the execution of his covenant curse to be a means of the execution of his covenant blessing for his people. And so, the execution of God's justice is both a warning of covenant curse and it is a promise of covenant blessing. So let's go. Back to the beginning of the story, which is actually at the end of chapter 8. You may remember that at the end of chapter 8, we are given some details that are going to help us understand chapter 9. First, we're told that Gideon, who is also called Jerubbaal, so Jerubbaal and Gideon are the same guy, we're told at the end of chapter 8 that he began to live like a pagan king he has 70 sons through many wives. However, we're also told at the end of chapter 8 that Gideon had another son with a Shechemite woman who was not one of his wives, and he names that son Abimelech, which means, my father is king. Now, In verses 33 through 35, you see that when Gideon dies, Israel again charges into idolatry, as they've done throughout this book. But they're no longer dabbling in idolatry. For they make Baal bareth, which means Baal or the Lord of the covenant, their God. So they are to be covenanted with Yahweh, but now they are binding themselves to Baal. It's as if their canonization is being solidified. You think of when you pour wet cement for a while, the cement's still kind of malleable. It hasn't quite settled, but eventually that becomes a solid block of concrete. And that's what's happening with Israel. They no longer remember, which means they're no longer keeping covenant with the Lord. You'll notice at the end of chapter 8, it uses God's covenant name. Whenever you see the Lord, and Lord is in all capital letters, that's translating Yahweh, his covenant name for Israel. Throughout chapter 9, though, that name is not going to show up when the author talks about God. You'll see it just translated as God, and it's the, the general word for God, not his covenant name. They also were told, failed to show steadfast love to Gideon's family. Yes, Gideon was flawed, but he was one of God's agents of deliverance, and they should have honored his family for all that he had done. And this is the background we need to have, which sets the stage for Abimelech, whom I call the Bramble King. You'll see why. But Abimelech, we learn, in chapter 9, is an ambitious man. This is perhaps a trait he has inherited from his father, who named him. And so he sets his sights on ruling Shechem, which is his mother's hometown. And his ravenous ambition and hunger for power is the first indication to us of his character, of what kind of man he is. And you usually do not want to place in power someone, who is thirsting for it. But he convinces, as you see in the first six verses of chapter nine, he convinces his mother's relatives to support him and to help him gain the support of the leaders of Shechem so that they will make him their king. And his argument is essentially twofold. First, he argues Gideon had a lot of sons. He's got 70 sons. Do you really want 70 kings ruling over you? This is really the argument of every tyrannical dictator there has ever been. You can't trust power for a lot of people. They're going to disagree. They'll fight with each other. Everything will be inefficient and slow. So you should just give all power to me and I will make things run more smoothly. So that's his first argument. His second argument is that he, Abimelech, unlike all of Gideon's other sons, is actually related to the Shechemites. He's their half-brother in one sense because his mother's from Shechem. Gideon's other sons aren't related to the people of Shechem. So don't they want their own flesh and blood to rule over them? Well, with the help of his mother's relatives, Abimelech convinces the leaders of Shechem to side with him. And so they go to the treasury of their false god and they give him 70 pieces of silver so that he can hire men to help him kill all of his other brothers. There's 70 sons of Gideon, 70 pieces of silver, one piece for each brother. So, Abimelech goes out and he takes this pagan money and he hires, as it says in verse 4, worthless and reckless fellows to follow him. Now, here's the second indication of Abimelech's character. For worthless men surround themselves with worthless men. In one sense, you are the company you keep. And these worthless men help Abimelech systematically execute his 70 brothers one by one, which is the third indication of his character. Not only is he murdering his brothers, we're we're told in verse 5, he kills them on one stone, which probably means he takes them one by one, puts their head on the stone, and executes them, so he watches each of them die, and he watches the rest of the brothers watch all of their others be killed one by one. He is a cruel man, however, the youngest son of Gideon survives, maybe he had lined them up from oldest to youngest, and by the time he gets to the youngest, Jotham has fled and hid, and he escapes. And Jotham's name means the Lord is perfect or the Lord is honest. And so we're going to hear from Jotham. But before we do, the leaders of Shechem take Abimelech to the oak of the pillar at Shechem, and they anoint him to be their king. Now, this is sadly ironic because this is the location where both Jacob and Joshua had different times, had pledged their faithfulness to the Lord. So, at a monument of faithfulness to God, Abimelech and the Shechemites act in unfaithfulness. And perhaps this is why God has Jotham speak from Mount Gerizim, because God can be ironic too. Because in Deuteronomy, there are two mounts, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, from which God's covenant curses for disobedience and his covenant blessings for obedience are to be pronounced to the people of Israel. And Mount Gerizim was supposed to be the mountain where blessings were spoken upon Israel. But Jotham gets up to speak a curse. And this curse comes in the form of a fable which you see in verses 7 through 15. Essentially in this fable, Jotham likens the people of Shechem to trees who go out looking for a king. And they first go to three useful and pleasing plants, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. But each of these plants who have useful functions and serve others, each of these plants say, we're too busy being good and useful to be your king. So the trees go to the bramble, which really has no use, and he agrees to be their king, although he threatens that if if they try to cross him, he's going to burn them all up. So Jotham now interprets his own fable in verses 16 through 21, which I will read in full. So Judges 9, beginning in verse 16, Jotham is now interpreting his fable. He says, Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved— For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and his with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So Jotham essentially tells Shechem, you are being treacherous and disloyal in serving Abimelech and putting Gideon's sons to death. The curse, therefore, is that Abimelech and the Shechemite leaders are ultimately going to destroy one another and get exactly what they deserve. Now, these verses are, are filled with covenant language. So Jotham's curse is a kind of covenant curse, warning his hearers of what will come if they continue down this path. They will meet just judgment, for covenant faith unfaithfulness will always meet with God's covenant curse. And through this way, God is, of course, teaching the Israelites who come after reminding them there's a greater covenant that will befall you if you remain unfaithful in idolatry, a greater covenant curse that will come. But here's an additional lesson from this section of the narrative. When it comes to leadership, we must remember that character is king. This is not the only qualification for leadership. But in God's eyes, this is always the primary qualification for leadership. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God establishes the stipulations for the day when Israel will want a king of their own. And it wasn't wrong to have a king, but God is telling them not just any king will be good. Now, the first stipulation in Deuteronomy 17 is God says, I am the one who chooses the king for you. Clearly, here, God is not the one choosing Abimelech. But the primary stipulation was that the king was to be exemplary in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. His character is what mattered most. The Lord said, you're not to have many horses, many wives, or a lot of wealth, because those things are going to lead you away from me. And the king was commanded to write out the entirety of God's law for himself and keep that law with him at all times to read it all the days of his life so that he would learn how to fear the Lord and remain faithful. He was to be, above all else, a covenant keeper, and therefore character is king for God's kings. You remember what the Lord says of why he chose David to be the king. was because David was a man after his own heart. God cared about what was on the inside. Now there's of course a lesson here for all kinds of leadership. This is a le- there's a lesson here for our own nation, but we must first apply this to ourselves in the church. Now we don't have kings, but we do have leaders. We have pastors, we have elders, we have deacons. And above all else, we must prize character as we call and ordain such men. Should come as no surprise that of all the qualifications listed for elders in the New Testament, all of the qualifications except one are matters of character. There's only one qualification of competency that he must be able to teach. Everything else is a qualification of character. So, good shepherd, we must always choose leader's Carefully, and we should look for covenant faithfulness first and foremost. We are to seek men after God's own heart to lead us. For leadership is good, but bad leadership is one of the most destructive forces in the world. And sadly, as Judges 9 teaches us, we often get the leaders we deserve. When we walk in unrighteousness, we should not be surprised when God gives us unrighteous leaders who will lead us into destruction. So we must not ordain, and I would argue we should not elect brambles. We should not rush to the laying on of hands. Sometimes churches can feel, well, we've got to have some kind of leader, so we just got to choose somebody. Wait until God Provides leaders who meet his qualifications. Abimelech was a bramble king. He came to be served, not to serve. He came to ruthlessly kill his brothers, not save his brothers. He was a covenant breaker, not a covenant keeper. And so when the Shechemite trees anointed Abimelech, they lit a match. And you know what happens to a fire, to a forest in a fire. Everything burns. And so verses 22 through 57 are describing the fulfillment of Jotham's curse, which was really God's curse spoken through Jotham. We know this is God's curse. This is all his doing, that he's orchestrating these events because the author tells us in verses 23 and 24, as well as the verses I read earlier at the very end in verses 56 and 57. Everything happening is God executing justice. This is the curse coming upon the heads of the covenant breakers. So you see in verse 22 that for three years... Everything seems to be relatively okay. But then in verse 24, it says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill His brothers. So again, this cannot be more clear. God is repaying Abimelech and Shechem for their sin. They are receiving retributive justice where the punishment fits the crime. They were treacherous to Gideon's sons, so now God is going to turn their treachery upon one another. Now, don't get overly concerned about the phrase evil spirit. The, the Hebrew word can refer to moral evil. It can also just refer to experiential misfortune. In other words, it, it means the Spirit is working for the harm and destruction of these people, not for their good and salvation. So I don't believe that this means God is sending a demon, nor do I believe it's saying that God is now perpetrating evil somehow. It means his spirit is now working to destroy these people and not save them. So instead of restraining their treacherous sin, he lets it grow in their own hearts because sin is always treacherous and destructive by nature. See, even if it Seems to serve you at first. Your sin will turn on you. At first, when we give in to sin, we we really think it's it's like lighting a, a a campfire in a in in some kind of contained space. We think, well, this isn't going to get out of control, and it'll actually be somewhat pleasant. It'll keep me warm. I can cook my food. But sin, like fire, seeks to spread. And it will not be bound. So, if God does not restrain the sin in your heart, it will become like the Canadian wildfires that we are experiencing. It was amazing to me. I was reading that there is smoke that has gone to Europe that they're getting that kind of. Ha- I mean, this is massive. The fire is spreading everywhere, and we're seeing the effects everywhere. Now, this wildfire begins with the Shechemites turning on Abimelech. Essentially, we we read that they start setting up thieves to ambush Abimelech's people. Abimelech was not living in Shechem with them, so anytime people were bringing goods or tribute to Abimelech, the Shechemites now set up people to ambush, take those good things, and bring them to Shechem. Well, This doesn't make Abimelech happy. And then we hear of a man named Gaul. From verse 28, it appears that unlike Abimelech, Gaul is a pure-blooded Shechemite. He is descended from Hamor, who was the founder of Shechem. And Gaul doesn't like Abimelech. So just like Abimelech persuaded Shechem to follow him, Gaul entices Shechem with very similar arguments. He says, well, what's better than having a half-brother rule you, a half-relative? How about a blood? I am a full Shechemite, and so I will be a better king. And Gaul even boasts of sure victory if he and Abimelech were to fight. But Zebul, the man that Abimelech had put in charge of Shechem, hears this, and he tells Abimelech. So Abimelech sets an ambush for Gaul. To make a long story short, Abimelech wipes out Gaul and his followers. But Abimelech is not content with this, for I've told you he is a cruel man." So, when the Shechemites try the next morning to just go back out and farm as if we didn't try to overthrow Abimelech, everything's the same as it was the day before. Abimelech is waiting for all of these Shechemite farmers, and he kills them. He de- defeats the city and destroys it. Picking up in verse 46, we then read When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, of Abimelech's victory, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. And so we see that part of Jotham's curse has now literally come true. Abimelech has burned the leaders of Shechem to death. The curse has come upon their heads. But Abimelech is still not content. Remember I told you he is also an ambitious man. Now there's no indication given of of why he now moves on to fight the the people of Thebes. My best guess is that Abimelech now thinks, well, this is a good time to extend my rule. So he defeats the the people of Thebes the way he defeated the people of, of Shechem, And they do the same thing. They have their own tower, their own stronghold. So they run into it for safety. So Abimelech says, I know how to deal with this. So he starts getting ready to burn them like he did the people of Shechem. But there is one complication. A woman drops a millstone on his head. Now, I have no idea. Why a woman, fleeing for her life into a city, decides to bring her upper millstone with her. This was very large, very heavy, it was for grinding, food. One commentator humorously said, One can just imagine a husband panting beside his wife as they run to refuge in the Sebez Tower, exasperated that his wife insists on lugging her upper millstone along. Doubtless, she responded, Now, dear, you never know when you might need a good millstone. It's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when beavers and the kids are getting ready to flee from the witch's wolves and Mrs. Beaver wants to pack her sewing machine. However, in God's promise, this conscientious housewife with her upper millstone is like another jail with her tent peg, and she is God's hand of justice as she throws her millstone down with perfect accuracy and crushes Abimelech's head. Now, don't miss the retributive justice here. For remember, Abimelech killed his brothers one by one, perhaps placing each head upon one stone. And now he dies with one stone falling upon his head. The curse has now come upon Abimelech's head. However, Abimelech does not want to die by a woman's hand. That would be a, a shameful way to die. So he convinces his armor bearer to run him through. And this is the end of this particular threat to Israel. For Abimelech was indeed a threat to all of Israel. For who knows what destruction he would have waged has his fiery reign been allowed to spread among more Israelite trees. For as Israel settles into their sin, you notice now here in chapter 9, there, there's no external threat. This is not a story of outside opposition, of foreigners coming and oppressing Israel. This is now beginning to to see what we'll see also later in Judges. Israel is now just starting to ruin itself. The threat and the ruin come from within. And so it is with us. So often we become fearful and concerned with external threats, but we must remember that our greatest enemy lies within. We must guard our own hearts against sin as much or more so than we guard against external dangers. Now, let me also just briefly observe here that there is no safety in sin. For sometimes when we're caught in the ruin of our own sin. We start to see things are not going well. We might be exposed. People are going to find out. Sometimes we think, well, the answer is, is we just keep running deeper into sin. You think of David when he sins against Bathsheba and things are going really badly. And so how does he try to escape? But just keeping more sin upon his sin. But when you seek to escape by running deeper into sin, you are like the Shechemites who flee Abimelech by seeking refuge in their own pagan temple. You think, oh, well, we'll go into the temple of our God, of Baal-Bareth. He'll protect us. And that's simply where they burn. The only escape is repentance. So no matter how deep, deep you feel you are in sin, no matter how dangerous you think your situation has come, when the Lord graciously shines the light of conviction upon you, turn and repent. Don't just keep fleeing into more towers of sin. Confess sin by bringing it into the open. You may fear what consequences that will bring, and it will probably bring some consequences. But you will also find forgiveness and redemption. Avoiding earthly consequences is not worth facing eternal damnation. For the quenchable fire that burned down Shechem's tower is nothing compared to the unquenchable fire of hell. So what do we learn from this narrative? Well, first in this story, as I said, we do see a warning of God's covenant curse. If Jotham's curse came to pass, how much more do you think God's curse will come to pass? And as I just said, that curse is ultimately the eternal fire of hell. There's a greater burning than what happens in Shechem. You see, God's judgments are not idle threats. He will give you mercy if you turn to him in faith and repentance, but he will execute justice if you remain stubborn in your unbelief. So there is a warning here that we must heed. But I do believe there is also a promise of covenant blessing. How so? Well, because we see in this story that even in executing his justice against Abimelech and the Shechemites, this is a way that God delivers Israel from a king who would have destroyed them. Even God's judgment against his enemies serves the salvation of his people. For God mercifully cuts Abimelech's reign short. It's just for three years. He only reigns over a small portion of Israel for a short period of time. So the story of Abimelech's downfall is a story of God's mercy to his people Israel. Verses 23 and 24 and 56 and 57 make clear that God is the one in control of every strange event that happens. And so we learn that God even sovereignly rules over wicked men and uses their own wickedness to destroy them and to save his people. And this should be a comfort to the church. For it's, easily, it, it's easy to look around at our own wicked nation, to look at wicked leaders throughout the world and See people rebelling against God's law, waging unjust wars, bringing devastation upon the earth, and we just feel helpless. But we learn in Judges 9 that God's Spirit is working everywhere, and His Spirit is working for the good of the church and for the ruin of the wicked. Now, most of that we don't even see, but it is happening. Upper millstones are still falling and hitting their mark all over the world. See, God will not let anything defeat his covenant promises to his people. And yes, this may involve saving us from external threats, but this also means there's times he's just saving us from ourselves when we would lead ourselves into ruin. We're probably not even aware of how many times had God led us, we would have rushed headlong into sin and he just mercifully held us back and he orchestrated events that protected us from our own sinful foolishness. So while we need to heed the warning of God's covenant curse, we should also rest in the promise of his covenant blessing. And why can we rest in the blessing of, of that promise, even though we would all admit we've been covenant breakers. Well, we can rest in the promise of blessing because God sent us the anti-Abimelech, who was not a bramble king, but who was a beloved king. And that beloved king is Jesus Christ. See, Abimelech was not the king that God chose. But Jesus is the king that God chose. Abimelech craved to gain the throne, and he came for people to serve him. Jesus gave up his heavenly throne, and he came not to be served, but to serve. Abimelech was proud. Jesus is humble. Abimelech plotted to kill his brothers. Jesus prepared to save his brothers. Abimelech was a covenant breaker. Jesus is the covenant keeper. But here is where Jesus and Abimelech are similar. I fully admit, I am the only one that I have ever read that compares Jesus to Abimelech. But after reigning for three years, God brought the curse upon Abimelech's head to save Israel from sure destruction. And after ministering publicly for three years, God brought the greater curse upon Christ's head on the cross to save his people from sure damnation. The difference is Abimelech deserved it, and Jesus didn't. Abimelech died a shameful death, and he tried to escape it. Jesus died a shameful death, which he embraced. So why can we be sure of God's covenant blessing even though we deserve the curse? Why can we receive mercy from God's hand? It's because God executed his justice against our sin when he sent Jesus to bear the curse of sin on the cross. And when he executed justice upon Christ, he secured mercy for us. As Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you hear that? The curse came upon Jesus' head so that we could have the blessing of Abraham. His baptism with fire is our salvation from the eternal fire of hell. So do not set up in your heart or follow worthless Bramble Kings, but turn in repentance away from your sin and follow by faith God's beloved King. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father. It is true that we often get leaders that we deserve, and that is not usually a good thing. But I thank thank you that the ultimate king you gave us is a king we do not deserve, but who is good and wise and perfect and humble and loving and faithful, and he seeks our salvation, not our death. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for grace to keep turning from sin and idolatry to trust in him alone for our salvation and to submit to him alone as our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.